Leaders, what keeps you up at night? Welcome to The Sweet Spot, the podcast series that expands the traditional term of what a boss is to tackle some of the most important issues in business. From business as usual and growing your market to everyday leadership issues or handling one in 100 year events, we aim to provide ongoing inspiration and education for CEOs, founders, management, shareholders and leaders of every stripe. The sweet spot is the future of work and business. Hi, I'm Dwayne Alexander and in today's episode I'll be chatting with Dr. Chris Galloway. Chris is an internationally recognized scholar and commentator on issue management and risk and crisis communication. His interests include reputation management and reputation risk, topics on which he runs workshops for the Public Relations Institute of New Zealand. He's an occasional uh, media analyst in both print and broadcast media too. Welcome. Thanks for joining us, Chris. It's very good to be with you, Dwayne. Thanks for the opportunity. No worries. I'm hoping that you can give me a little brief overview of what you've been up to, certainly in the last year, but also what's led you into this role that you currently have. Well, one of the things that I think is even more critical than ever it has been in these COVID times is for organisations to learn how to handle communicating in situations of volatility and uncertainty. These, These are situations where Crises can emerge frighteningly quickly and organizations and in particular the leaders of organizations of all types need to know how to confront those. And having been around in the crisis space for quite a while, I am keen to contribute what I can to encourage organizational leaders to get on board with preparing and uh, being ready. Thank you, Chris. And I guess what do you think it is that CEOs have learned uh, this year? Certainly, uh, many boards were ready for ad hoc crises, but I think you can argue that 100-year events was not on many's uh, board papers. One of the issues with some organisations is that they are understandably focused on numbers and on hard outputs and uh, assets, but they don't often allow themselves the liberty of imagining what seems to be impossible. I'm thinking about the fact that, for example, in 2013, when Fonterra had its dilemmas with suspected botulism in some of its product, um, the dilemmas that they had weren't due to the fact they didn't have a crisis plan. It is just that their crisis plan did not envisage a worldwide product recall, which is what they had to confront. So when organizations think about possible crises that could smack them in the corporate head, if you like, um, it's always a good idea to allow your mind to think about what seems to us to be impossible right now, but you never know what just might actually happen. Uh, And that's allowing your imagination perhaps to roam quite widely. But we've seen lately and in recent years that the totally unexpected is all too often what actually happens. Do you think it's possible for boards to develop an intuition? Because I think it's, you know, in in that example, in Fonterra's example, for many years, um, it was said that the board... uh, 
understood some of the issues but didn't listen to advice, you know? Well, there is, as we know, such a thing as confirmation bias, which is where people look for information that supports their prior judgments. And I guess all of us do it from time to time, but it can have significant consequences when confirmation, confirmation bias afflicts people at board level. I once worked for an organization where it was known that the chief executive, a very high profile individual, was not keen to get bad news. So the bad news tended to stay further, further down the food chain. But um, one of the things that I think people do need to value more than perhaps they have is just that intuition that you talk about. Um, often our intuition is actually right. There are, of course, other times when it can mislead us if we don't allow it to be balanced by our rational faculties. But usually what happens to many of us, and we may be sometimes reluctant to admit this, is that we form an intuitive view or even an emotional view and use our rational faculties to justify that, that view. Mm. So it doesn't start in some kind of uh, amazing mental process. It starts with intuition, gut instinct, whatever you want to call it. But all too often, um, that gut instinct can be right. I'm thinking about times when perhaps we meet new people for the first time, obviously. And so often, at least this is the case for me, I have a sense of whether this person is the kind of person I can get along with or the person that I might have to work to get along with. I suspect many of us have this experience. And when it comes to looking at crises, it's, it's a matter of thinking, how is this going to play out? And this is where your intuitive judgment can come in. Particularly important when you're thinking about what degree of media interest is this likely to attract? What are our employees likely to think about it? Um, your intuitive judgment might say, well, actually, this is a big deal. We need to get on with it. Whereas rationally, you might look at the situation and say, well, there's not been a whole lot of inf uh, media interest so far. Let's just keep the, 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 the shutters down for a bit longer. Um, and in those situations, I'd recommend that the gut instinct is worth going with. Crises inherently, of course, are things that are ridden with uncertainty. And uncertainty means that you're never going to be confronting a crisis with a complete data set. You're never going to have all the information that you want. Mm. And you're going to have to make decisions on that basis. And intuition can be a valuable resource there. I'm not at all, I stress, saying that we need to toss our rational assessments overboard. Not at all. But historically, senior executives have been reluctant to allow intuition a place in their decision-making. I'm really just saying that would, would be good if that changed. Yeah, and I also think part of that intuition is having excellent monitoring systems and having a proper ear to the ground digitally and the old-fashioned way through networks, through stakeholder communication, through community uh, communication as well. Because if you are going to become aware of something earlier, 
you can deal with it appropriately rather than much later down the track when it's escalated and become even more of an issue. Yeah, there is a rule, you're quite right, there is a rule of thumb that says if through your environmental scanning you pick up an issue early in its development, you, you both have more options in addressing it and a lower cost of doing so. And the options shrink and the cost escalates as the issue develops if it is not addressed. That's so true. Um, and Chris, you're, you have some favourite frameworks which you like to work with in rebuilding uh, reputation after an issue has escalated into a crisis. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the frameworks that you've worked with over the years? Sure. Um, one of the fundamental principles that I hold to is that every crisis, no matter how well handled, does some kind of reputational damage. And some of the factors to consider in dealing with this are how much is a company or a person seen to be responsible for the crisis? What type of crisis is happening? And what is the existing or known reputation and behavior of a company or a person? And there's several strategies or approaches that people can take to repair their reputation after a, a crisis. One of the reasons before I get into that, why this is important, is that once the worst of the crisis has passed, um, boards, chair people, senior executives, all too often just want to quote unquote, move on. And that can result in failing to learn the lessons of the crisis it can result in failing to identify reputational issues that may have arisen in or as a result of the crisis and addressing those because a crisis poorly handled can produce a whole new set of issues. Again, if they're not addressed, you can have another crisis experience. So there's one, two, three, four, five key strategies. The first one is simply denial, where you say, nope, that's not down to us, or where you shift the blame to someone who, or an organization that you say is the real culprit. Um, I'd have to say that I don't believe blame shifting is a very good strategy because it tends to go down poorly with the wider public. Uh, there is a case in Australia where Shell had a, I believe it was a refinery operation on the shores of Sydney Harbour being operated for it by somebody else. Uh, there was an oil spill. They, Shell could have shifted blame to the operator of the facility and said it's their fault. In fact, they garnered a lot of kudos for saying, it wasn't immediately down to us, but because this is our facility, we are taking responsibility. And that, of course, is the right way to go. Mm. There's an, the second strategy is yeah. called evading responsibility. Not quite the same as shifting the blame. Um, it's, there's, there's a couple of things that come here. 
One is called provocation, where the organisation may claim that whatever it did wrong was in response to another wrongful act. You know, so-and-so said, did this, and therefore we had no option but to do that. There is another aspect to evading responsibility known by a big word called defeasibility, and that just simply means we didn't have the knowledge or the control about important factors related to the offensive act. Mm. So actually... We didn't know that this leak of chemical waste into the such and such stream was happening until the local environmental group brought it to our attention. Terribly sorry about that. So you can make an excuse for factors beyond your control or suggest that the action was justified based on good intentions. You know, we didn't mean for this to happen. We were trying to do this, which is, you know, something that's really good, but Tragically, it went wrong. Explaining is losing, right? Well, in this case, again, it's a case of um, strategies that I would suggest don't go down particularly well because the public tend to take a simplistic look and say, well, where does the buck stop here? And often it is with the CEO or the management level or the board level of an organisation, and they will hold you responsible. But there's three other strategies to talk about. One is called reducing offensiveness, which is where the company accused might attempt to reduce the degree of negative feeling by doing, for example, bolstering. Bolstering is reminding the audience or your stakeholders of your previous good acts or good reputation hey, you know, we've had an unblemished record until now. This is obviously a one-off. Minimization is an attempt to convince the audience that the act in question is less serious than it appears. And there is another related strategy of differentiation where you're trying to distinguish what happened from other things that you are positioning as even more offensive. Mm. Um, there's transcendence, which is where you're, you're looking at the macro context, the broad context, and saying, well, when you consider the whole history of, let's say, the chemical inter- industry in this country, this is a relatively minor occurrence. Look at the big picture, and the big picture is kind yes. of okay. Um, you can attack your accuser to question the credibility of the source of the accusations. You've got to be pretty sure you're on firm ground before you do that because Mm. they might bite back. Compensation is obviously redressing the victims uh, with appropriate remuneration or compensation. The fourth strategy is simply corrective action. This is down to us. We'll make it right. We'll fix the problem. Now, an interesting one is called, and the fifth one is called mortification, which is where the accused organization simply admits responsibility and asks for forgiveness. There is no effort to introduce explanations, excuses, defenses. You're simply saying, hey, guys, this is down to us. We are not going to try to do anything other than simply say, please forgive us. 
we will make it right. We want to work together with you to do that over the coming months and years. It's interesting you say that, Chris, because in our experience, it very much starts at the top and is very much a matter of EQ and the EQ of the leaders involved um, on whether they're willing to choose that strategy. Well, it does require courage. And one of the things that comes up in that context is legal advice that may be saying to the chairman or chairperson of the board, uh, hey, you can't have your chief executive saying this because it exposes you to legal vulnerabilities. Now, it may indeed do that, but the chairperson or um, senior executives, chief executives responsible for decision-making in a crisis situation may take the view that the legal risk is outweighed by the reputational risk. One of the things that we know about reputation is that while there is no research-supported link between reputation and good financial performance, we do have a research-supported link between reputation and purchase intentions. So if the management level of an organization allows the reputation of itself to be uh, tarnished in some way, that can and will influence future customer or stakeholder purchase or support intentions. So there's a trade-off that needs to be made. And as I mentioned a minute ago, that can require courage, but often it works out. Mm. Oh, that's very useful, Chris. And that framework, I'm sure uh, many boards uh, will spend hours and hours deliberating which choice they're going to make, right? I think that's right. And while lawyers have a, a fiduciary responsibility, along with other board members, have a legal responsibility and so on, um, one of the things that needs to be borne in mind in thinking about how customers and other stakeholders assess the handling of a crisis is not just the law of the land, not just the company policies and procedures, but there's an emotional uh, assessment that may be based, for example, on the consideration of fairness. You know, the company might be able to stand on some legal ground and say, we don't have to pay compensation because legally we're not obliged to. That may be viewed by many customers or other stakeholders as an unfair response to something that caused damage to the interests of a whole lot of people. Yes, it can be very serious. And, you know, companies can lose their social license to operate under those circumstances, you know? True. So an important thing for people looking at black and white prescriptions of what is possible to do is to uh, infuse those with a recognition that customers and other stakeholders will be taking an emotional view of what happened as well mm. as a rational view. And one way of taking those into account is that when you face, for example, customer boycotts, customer uh, a notable rise in customer complaints, customer anger, the important thing is to accept that those are real 
Those are not just people who've got a bee in their bonnet and want to have a go at you. This is anger that can be, uh, I guess, to use a contemporary analogy, like a virus communicated to other people. Mm. And it, that potential needs to be stopped by appropriate action quickly. And I guess that's another thing that I'd be recommending to boards. It used to be said that when a crisis hit, you had a golden hour in which to get yourself organized for things like responses to media. And that was based on battlefield experience when it was found that a wounded soldier had a much better chance of survival if he, or I guess today she, was transported to a field hospital within the first hour of sustaining that injury. But now it is literally true that uh, the response time can be measured in seconds. Which brings me to my next point, really. We've spoken about the monitoring and the EQ of the, the top leadership and the useful frameworks that you speak about. But how many companies have a ready response team which actually increases the likelihood of successfully uh, succeeding in an issue or crisis? I'm going to give you an answer which may seem like fudging the question, but it isn't really. Uh, and that is not enough. I think every company, no matter how unlikely they think a devastating crisis might be, needs that ready response team, needs someone to lead it, needs to identify who in the event of a crisis like that will be the media spokesperson. It's good to have a backup to that person. And by the way, the media spokesperson doesn't necessarily always have to be the chief executive if that person is somewhat shy of dealing with the media. If that is the case, then that shyness might show itself in fumbling answers to questions which hard-nosed journalists might interpret as trying to hide something. Yeah, in response to that, we've developed sort of a risk matrix for boards which almost goes operationally per unit and identifies the likelihood of things going wrong in each of those units. And then, of course, it identifies who the likely spokesperson would be. But it does rely on you having really up-to-date mechanisms to communicate very adapt adeptly, you know, through texts, through uh, instant messaging, through email databases, through instant uh you know, uh, video calls and what have you, because as you say, the golden second is is arrived, is not the golden hour, you know. So I think that's quite important. I think it's absolutely important. There's a case where an airliner, Korean airliner, crashed on arrival in San Francisco airport a few years ago. Within a minute, a, a senior Samsung executive who was traveling on that plane began live tweeting about it, and the airline never got on top of the story. Um, but I would, I would say this in terms of a ready response team and gathering it together. Um, consider the possibility that those technologies that you referred to a minute ago, Duane, might not be available if the crisis you're dealing with is, has been caused by a natural disaster. Correct. A number of years ago, Hurricane Katrina devastated um, parts of the Gulf of Mexico coast of the United States. At the worst of that um, devastation, 
the National Guard was resorting to having runners to convey messages because all other means of communication had been knocked out. Now, it may not happen here in New Zealand, but if the so-called big one happens and there's to be a major earthquake somewhere in the country, it's highly likely that that would at least damage or affect cell phone communication, the ability to send instant messages, those sorts of things. So part of the imagining what might today be seemed to be impossible is, well, what if we had none of the usual means of communication? What if we couldn't get the um, ready response team together? And one thing that you can do in a situation like that, uh, assuming that media have at least some means of their own communication, is to develop some draft press releases that take account of the key scenarios you're expecting to have happen and get those draft releases pre-approved so that if someone in a branch office somewhere cut off from the main office, let's say, but is being pestered by the local media for a statement, that person can adjust the release according to the details of the situation being addressed and give it to the local media people in the confidence that the bulk of it has already been approved and what they have been able to tweak uh, Mm -hmm. is in line with that pre-approval. Exactly. Some of the companies that we've worked with have been extremely proactive uh, and obviously are in the firing line for health and safety. And rather than having a desktop um, tomb of paperwork, which is left for file 13 or left in the wrong place, they actually conduct a quarterly drill where they literally go through the scenarios on a quarterly basis. They anoint a little team and they go through physically and they have a muscle memory for for what could go wrong, be it an accident out there in the the field with one of their trucks uh, or something that happens uh, in one of the warehouses or something. So it's quite unusual, but I think it's it's good to use muscle memory rather than have to refer to a 200-page book that's been prepared, right? Yes, that's absolutely the case. Um, I used to work for an organisation that seemed to think that progress was measured by the number of plans in ring binders stashed on a shelf in an office. And, of course, that's never the case. Just to reinforce the point about speed, I did a presentation to a group of managers, an Australasian group of managers from a tourism industry company, which was based in North America. And I had to sign quite a weighty non-disclosure agreement. And once I'd signed it and was presented with their crisis plan, I discovered that before any media release could be issued here, it had to go through a clearing process in North America. In reality, that just wouldn't work. Uh We know the cliche that nature abhors a vacuum. Uh In a vacuum of reliable or credible information, journalists will go elsewhere in order to get their stories. Much, much better, of course, for you to tell your story rather than have somebody else to do it for you. Exactly. It's said that... You know, it takes decades to build a reputation and it, it can literally be lost overnight. Um, 
you know, Weta Digital has done such a great job over many, many years of building an international brand, brand, and they are truly a destination brand in their industry. What do you think uh, they could have done differently uh, when this particular issue arose around HR and culture? Well, first of all, it is actually quite rare for organisations to lose a reputation overnight because reputations tend to build up like a sandbank over time. But one of the other rules of thumb about crisis communication is to tell it all, tell it yourself and tell it early. Now, just to mention tell it all, there may be some things that for legitimate, legal or uh, other reasons cannot be disclosed at the time that you're facing up to the media. It may be, for example, that you're dealing with people who have suffered medical events or um, severe injuries, and for the reasons of their privacy and their mental health, whatever, you can't disclose all the information you have. However, that does not mean that your response should be no comment. What it does mean is that you should front up. And in the case of Weta, if there is a cultural problem in the organisation, if there is wrong, morally wrong behaviour happening in the organisation, the best thing to do is to adopt the strategy of mortification that we talked about earlier, Mm -hmm. saying, hey, guys, this has only just come to our attention, but... We're not putting up any excuses. From our point of view, this is totally unacceptable. And we just simply ask for forgiveness for the fact that this happened. We are going to bend every effort towards putting the situation right. So not trying to excuse, not trying to blame shift, not trying to drag it out by um, offering one explanation one day and then another explanation the next and so on. This is like the... um, to use perhaps a slightly gross example, this is like a boil that has to be lanced. And the sooner you lance it, the better the poison uh, can go, the earlier, rather, the poison can go. That makes a lot of sense. Thanks, Chris. I guess um, we've spoken about the useful frameworks, but it's all about being practical and rolling up your sleeves. You know, COVID has resulted in a lot of restructuring of organisations Many people are having to step up into CEO roles and there's been restructuring and redundancies. Uh, You know, as we head to 2021, there's a lot of new leadership that are stepping up into the breaches and there may have been other issues bubbling and and broiling under the surface. I mean, if you were the CEO stepping into one of those companies where there's a a number of little issues bubbling under but could uh, grow to something that would affect the balance sheet and the reputation, what are the first few things that you would put into place? Well, one of the first messages that I would have would be to challenge the idea of a so-called new normal. We've seen this phrase bandied around quite a lot, and it seems to me to imply that once we get through the worst of the COVID situation, life will return to uh, certainly an altered state but an altered and relatively stable state. I just simply don't believe that. We are facing, will be facing significantly altered operating landscapes, and there is no guarantee of stability of any kind. So the idea of a new normal 
is one that I think we need to put aside. Uh, and we just need to talk about, well, I use the phrase new operating landscape, perhaps mm -hmm. something along those lines. Um, the second thing I would do is I'd want to talk to people individually, assuming that the organization uh, permitted that in terms of size, about the issues that they felt were most, most pressing. And the reason for that is if you hold a staff meeting and you have 50 people in the room, there'll always be some who will feel constrained from expressing what they really think, mm. no matter how you want to encourage them to share their opinions. So sitting down over a coffee with someone and saying, okay, let's talk about what's going on here. What, if you were me, what would you be attending to first? Mm. I think that's an important step to, to take. The other thing is I would seek to establish a policy of, to use a much overused word, transparency. And that doesn't mean letting everything spill out all the time. What it does mean is that when there's an important decision to be made, as far as is possible, sharing not only the decision, but the reasons for it and even the process by which the decision was arrived at. Not just saying, hey, guys, life's going to be different from next Monday. Get with the program. Um, the other thing that I'd wanting, be wanting to do is to, again, to use an overused word, empower key staff with greater autonomy than they may have had. I, I think that a lot of organizational life clearly requires a great deal of adaptability but that adaptability or flexibility needs to be exercised within a framework of the company's mission, values, goals, mm. and so on, as well as the corporate ethics code, what society expects, and so on. So it's a matter of finding a balance between the constraints, the operating boundaries, if you want to call them that, and freedom of movement for your key people. Yeah. So it shouldn't be that every tricky problem gets escalated up the food chain to mm. uh, the boss. And if you have that established as a, a way of operating, that in itself will constrain your ability to respond quickly to crisis situations. Mm. It's more a matter of saying to people, okay, I want you to talk to me about what you're doing in your department about the situation and do it on an exception basis. If there is something I really need to know, of course, tell me and I'll back you up yeah. or give you my views or offer perhaps mm -hmm. a, a suggested course correction. But if not, I want you and I trust you and that trust is an important word to be use, using. I trust you to do the right thing in line with what we as an organisation hold close to our hearts. Yeah, Chris, you seem to be an academic with a commercial nose as well. How is it, what is it in your background that has enabled you to think in two different camps? And they really are two different camps in some ways. They, they are. I like to call myself a pracademic. Yeah. Well, I've worked at um, executive levels in large national organisations and I have benefited from the kind of autonomy that uh, I've been talking about, for example, I used to do political relationship managing for a very large national organization. 
And through being involved in meetings at the head office, I knew what the company wanted to achieve and roughly how it wanted to achieve it. But it was left very much to me to build the relationships at Parliament and with officials that needed to be in place for the organisation to achieve its objectives. That is a very affirming thing. It was for me, and I believe in practice will be for key people in any organisation. So I would be recommending a management style that is very clear about goals, is very clear about the organisational values, uh, but let's staff get on with the job of determining how to achieve those goals and intervenes only when a course correction is needed. Mm. Okay. Um, you've got a lot on your plate all the time. And as, as I said in the intro, you've done regular media contributions. What are the projects that you are excited to be working on in 2021? What sort of lights your fire and helps you get up in the morning? <laughs> um, one of the areas that I'm looking at is public relations and artificial intelligence. Now, New Zealand, of course, is in the fortunate position of having a thing called the AI Forum, which brings together a number of companies and government organizations and researchers interested in artificial intelligence and sharing knowledge and and so on. Um, The popular commentary about artificial intelligence is that AI is going to make it a lot easier to automate routine tasks that we superior human beings don't want to undertake. Um, And there are all kinds of cool applications of AI. This morning I was in a new gym in my locality, which uses artificial intelligence to recognize people as they come in through the door. So it will say, hello, Chris, and I will- It's good to see you after all these months. Yes, yes. And uh, I will be wearing an AI-empowered bracelet. When I go to the the treadmill, it will say to me, actually, Chris, your program calls for you to get on the rowing machine first. And that's all by AI. But my argument is that that is trivializing what AI will eventually do in reshaping our society, reshaping our economy, reshaping the way that we do business, and of course, reshaping the way that we think about public relations. One of the areas I'm involved in looking at with others is the ethics associated with artificial intelligence. Now, the government here has an AI charter, which sets out expectations for how the public sector will work with artificial intelligence, and that is fantastic. There is a relatively recent guide for public relations practitioners as to how to engage with the ethics of AI applications. But there's a conundrum, a a dilemma, a problem along the lines of, imagine you have a network that includes both AI-enabled systems, let's say like the one at my local gym, and human beings. Imagine also that some kind of ethical dilemma arises to do with the operation of this combined network, for want of a better term. 
you can't easily go back and say, well, where in the network was this ethical decision, this problematic ethical decision actually made? Was it a decision by the AI-enabled systems? Was it a decision by the humans or what? And the best advice so far is that you need to consider ethical matters before you start devising algorithms. But this is very much all a work in progress, and it's not just a matter of concern for the public relations profession. It is going to invade boardrooms. Mm. Imagine a situation where an AI-enabled system has autonomously made a decision in line with its previous programming to do something that a stakeholder thinks is unacceptable or has caused some kind of personal uh, damage. And can a machine, can an AI-enabled system be held ethically accountable? Can it be held liable in a legal sense? Mm. These are questions that ultimately I suggest that boardrooms are going to have to grapple with. And my guess is that that is going to be the case much sooner rather than later. It's already happening in the Tesla world and self-driving cars, isn't it? It it is indeed. Mm. And what we're seeing in situations like that one is a harbinger of what we'll see here, I suspect, within the next couple of years. So this is not something that board members, directors, uh, senior executives, chair people mm. should be lightly pushing away or pushing into some kind of um, future place that they currently don't want to go to. Mm. This is where confirmation bias should be put to one side and people should be saying, what do we need to know about this new technology or more accurately yeah. set of technologies? What potential impacts could it have on mm. our business? I think today it's actually about, it's about continual learning for boards and directors as well. You can't rely on your original degree or degrees or your life experience at this stage solely. And in fact, we have a premise that you know many board members come from an accounting background and latterly, Many come from the IT background because of tech startups and what have you. And many have not uh, had the opportunity to go through some crisis training, communication training, and we've seen that as a gap. Um, Explain how board members could do some micro-credentialing. I mean, you're a contributor to companycrisis.co.nz, which we've launched, which is aimed at allowing boards to get in... uh, under the privacy of their office or their home and just understand some of the resources that are available. But what could, uh, I suppose, board members, founders do to upskill themselves uh, while, while souping up the engine, so to speak? This is where a word that academics would use comes very much into play, and that is interdisciplinarity, basically meaning that considering crisis potential considering crisis response and post-crisis remediation, if that's called for, um, shouldn't at a board level be just a matter of an accounting looking at it in purely accounting terms, a lawyer looking at it in purely corporate legal terms and so on. This is where different disciplines need to come together and be sharing their perspectives 
because I strongly believe that when you're dealing with a threat to the organization, which is what a crisis is, one discipline is not going to cut it if it tries to present a perspective of that situation that is solely based on, let's say, an accounting perspective. What might this do to the bottom line? There's a classic example of this Some years ago in Thailand, there was a devastating factory fire with a number of people killed. And I think it was in Hong Kong that the the owning company was based. Their first statement subsequent to the fire was, we don't believe this is going to affect our quarterly result. So disciplines need to come together. In terms of upskilling, I don't know of any easily accessible course in New Zealand at present for people to take um, online at home, as you mentioned, but Mm -hmm. I see that there is a need for one. And it's not just, you know, here's what is in our crisis plan. Here's what is expected of you when the crisis hits. Here's what you should do afterwards. Here's how to respond to the media and so on. It is as much about helping people to generate a crisis-ready mindset. Mm. Whereas whereas if people are oriented to looking for crisis potential, picking up signals and being ready to act responsively and quickly, that's worth more than a 100-page crisis plan. 100%. And in fact, Crises tend to come from completely left field places where boards have almost not been sensitized to do in the last 10 years. I mean, these days they can come from environmental or accessibility or diversity, stuff that boards haven't traditionally had on their horizon. I found that crises generally tended to come along at about four o'clock on a Friday afternoon. I can concur with you on that one. (laughs) I'll tell you one issue that I think will be high on the public's agenda in 2021 and going forward and also high uh, on, on, should be high on boardrooms agenda. And that is the whole issues, uh, set of issues around supposed structural racism, uh, discrimination, diversity, all of that, that they form an interlinked set of issues. And it is very easy in the current climate for someone to be accused of a racist response. For example, we've had people saying that it is racist that our road signs do not include the name in Tereo Māori. Now, be that as it may, that is a criticism that's been advanced by particular um, advocates and relevant organizations should be prepared for that. So in my view, uh, there should be a bit of a, it sounds cute to talk about a vulnerability audit, but that should flow from environmental scanning. Yeah. So if you're seeing a lot of organizations being targeted on the basis of supposed racism, especially so-called structural racism, then it's appropriate to say, well, how vulnerable are we? Do we have our ducks in a row on Mm. that whole question? Do we have a genuinely diverse workforce? Do we have a genuinely genuinely diverse board? If not, what can we do about it? 
So, and that, of course, shouldn't be done simply just to counter criticism, but it is a reputation protection, reputation management issue, yeah. which should be attended to even as diversity initiatives should be taken because they're the right thing to do. Well, Chris, thank you so much. Our time is coming to an end. It's almost like we've just touched the surface. It's actually a number of topics that are pretty vital to founders, CEOs and boards. I think what we may have to do is perhaps meet again and chat in more detail about some very practical things that will help instruct uh, C-Suite on how to prepare for uh, and act quickly and successfully during a crisis. Maybe let's make a date and meet again. I would obviously love to do that. One final thought is um, a key aspect of crisis management and crisis response is actually recognizing in the first place that what you're facing is a crisis. Some chief executives, some board members, chair people might look at a bit of a fuss being made in the media and just say, oh, it'll blow over. My suggested rule of thumb is if the media tell you you've got a crisis, you've got a crisis, whether you agree or not. Very wise words to end off our first session. Thank you, Chris. Uh, look forward to having our next one. Me too. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Please like, review or share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. If you'd like to follow us, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook and LinkedIn under Alexander PR or follow the links in the show notes below. Until next time, thank you for listening.